0: This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. If you'd like to support the work we're doing, please visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with Hoops today from The Advancement Project, Backtalk from Bitch Media, AJ+, Democracy Now!, This Week in Blackness, and Counterspend.
1: School-to-prison pipeline is the description of how the school system is set up to push
0: you into the prison system. School's no longer a community. School's no longer a family, a place where where we're always welcome. You walk into school, the first thing you see is a metal detector. The first face that greets you is a school police officer.
2: All the kids want to do is go to school. They don't want to go to school to be labeled a criminal.
0: When folks talk about the school to prison pipeline, it's real. There's a direct correlation to lack of education, economic opportunity, and also incidences of incarcerations.
3: We have had kids in the system, you know, hitting somebody with a ruler. We've had kids in the system tussling or fighting in a hallway. They put me in a cell,
4: took me, and handcuffed me to the chair.
5: I sat in the cell for 11 and a half hours.
4: I was having an emotional breakdown because I knew in my heart that I didn't really do anything. I just felt like I was being criminalized.
2: These are my kids, and this system has taken them and turned them into something they're not.
6: I think zero tolerance actually makes schools more dangerous. It creates the illusion of safety, but not the reality. The
0: concept of zero tolerance makes no sense anywhere for anything. It's a recipe for disaster for a lot of young folks. We know that it doesn't work. It would be insane to continue this policy. To feel alienated and to feel watched in your own school is not healthy for that student. If you disrupt the positive
6: things going on in his or her life, they may never get that back.
2: This criminalization is not just an inner city problem. It's happening in every school district, suburbs, inner city, all over the place.
0: What if we stopped and we looked at each one of these students as a human being and said, what can we do to help you become a better student?
7: So the first topic we're talking about this week um, is a case that happened w- this week where um, a student, a black female student at Spring Valley High School in Columbia, South Carolina, um, was sitting in class and wound up getting really brutally uh, arrested by a sheriff's deputy. Um, she had she supposedly had her phone out during class, and the teacher got mad about that and escalated, and the teacher called an administrator and then called over um, the sheriff who was on campus um, and that sheriff uh, deputy, his name's Ben Fields. There's there's a video of him flipping her onto the floor. It's a really hard thing to watch. It's such a tough clip to watch. But he flips her onto the floor and then and then drags her across the floor and cuffs her hands behind her back. And this happened on on Monday. And by Wednesday, um, it was announced that the sheriff's office was going to fire that deputy. And they've asked the FBI and the Justice Department to look into to do an investigation into what happened here. And so that's a, that's a really quick response on the part of the sheriff's department, which I think is really good. But it's also super important to recognize that this isn't just one isolated incident of one young black woman in a high school getting horribly arrested in this way. But this is part of a pattern. And there's a couple patterns going on here. Um, one is the sort of the policing in schools and the, the rise of police officers being stationed on campuses. And the other is the way that there's uh, a racial disparity in punishment in classes, and who's likely to be suspended, um, and who's likely to be called out as troublemakers in class.
2: Yeah, um, another thing is that uh, during the press conference that happened on Tuesday, um, the county sheriff, he, you know, he answered questions about this is before they fu- they decided to fire the officer, you know, that they he had to answer questions about the clip and what happened what he saw and you know and he made sure to say like this this clip is 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 horrible and and, in I think he said he made his stomach turn to like watch this um but there were also interesting kind of um fucked up things that he said during this press conference he made sure to point out that like um, this incident wouldn't have happened had the student listened to her teacher.
7: Oh, so yeah. that whole that whole like oh well she was misbehaving. So yes, yeah,
2: so uh, like this wouldn't have escalated if she hadn't started. So he means sure to, to say like this started with her. Yes, this ended with my officer, um, but this started with her, which is incomprehensible to me because um, nothing child does in school, sort of like literally physically attacking somebody else, warrants that kind of response by a teacher. So for him to say that was just incredible because, you know, he was trying to play this fine line of saying like, my my officer behaved in a horrible way, but... But hey, guys, uh, this kid should have listened to our teacher, which is which makes no sense. And then somebody asked him a question about whether he thinks whether whether he thought that race played a motivation into what the officer did, and uh, like in this most peculiar fashion, the the sheriff responded by saying, well, I don't, I, I don't, I don't have a comment on that or something, but he was like, well, I, what I do know is that this officer has been dating an African American woman for some time now, as if, um, his own personal dating life has anything to do with the brutality that he inflicted on this kid. And, and like, and ignoring like that there, you know, this is a systemic thing that happens to black kids in school where they are like, um, Disproportionately suspended, or um, get arrested on campus for like offenses like this, and like if we're going to be real about like why this happened to this child, it's because you know we operate within a white supremacist system where we don't treat black and brown children the same as we do other kids.
7: Yeah, there's this whole. I mean, there's this. This plays into the whole ongoing debate over about how whether filming the police keeps us safe. You know that. In this case, other students in, in the classroom. As soon as the sheriff got involved, started filming the incident, and because of that, we can see what happened. And there was, and this this deputy is going to be fired, and hopefully there will be some justice for the student involved in this case. But the fact that this guy is is, is a bad apple, just because he's being called out and and, and facing some repercussions for this, um, that's that's not like enough. I hope that uh, people are also getting the message that this is part of a pattern and part of the system where especially black students are singled out for punishment in unfair ways. And there was a, actually a really big report published on this uh, from the African-American Policy Forum back in February of this year, um, so long before this incident occurred. It's called Black Girls Matter, pushed out, over-policed, and, uh, and underprotected. that found that black girls face really high rates of punishment in schools and can be forced out of the educational system for small behavioral issues. And that report lists out uh, several other tragic incidents that sound really similar to this one where, um, girls who made really small infractions in class, like falling asleep in class or writing high on a locker room, uh, door, wound up being suspended or expelled or, uh, or threatened with arrest or actually arrested. And it's, it kind of ties into, uh, how there are now a lot more police on, on high school campuses in the United States. And how that that's being seen as a solution for behavioral problems. Like if teachers can't handle something, you call the police. And I think that there, there's been a big increase in this over the last decade. That in 2009, there were 17,000 law enforcement officers stationed in our schools. And that ties into what people call the school-to-prison pipeline, where so a student like uh, gets in trouble in, in class for something small like this. And then they wind up getting the police called on them and then they wind up getting arrested and that puts them into the criminal system that winds up often with, with them being more likely to go to prison later in life or go to jail for stuff like throwing spitballs.
2: Yeah, it's, it's just, uh, it just, I mean, this is just like a, another glaring example of how like structural racism is in every part of our culture and, and like in every part of our daily lives and how, um, I think for, for folks who like don't have to touch this every day or to deal with this every day, like um, it's it's hard to stomach and watch these like clips. So another thing I wanted to talk about was that um, oftentimes when incidents like this happen that are caught on tape, uh, I think that you know we just get bombarded by them like mm-hmm. on our timeline, like on Facebook or on Twitter or whatever. Like
7: one more terrible thing today, right? Yeah.
2: And uh, and. I think that we need to be more conscientious about what we share in terms of like the clip Uh, because it can be very traumatizing for um, people in that community to be like, okay, why why are you resharing this clip of this young black girl getting brutalized? You know, it's it can be very traumatic. And I mean, I think we can talk about like accountability and like white right supremacy or, or, you know, like police brutality without actually showing the violence. Um, and I think that sometimes for people who don't have to deal with the violence on a daily basis, um, like we like, I, oh, we feel like, well, we have to see it to believe it. But does that mean that like, you know, the people we're sharing it with have to see it as well?
7: Yeah, yeah, I think that's a really big issue, and especially, I mean, you and I are editors, so we have to figure out like, what do you actually include in an article when you're writing about this? When when we write an article about this, do we include a clip of this video, or do we just describe what the video shows and how graphically do you describe it? What's the actual language that you choose? And those are those are big decisions. And with this one, in this case, I wrote an article about this for our website, um, talking about that study that I just mentioned and how it ties into this specific incident. And I really, con- I was like, no way am I including a clip of that video because it's so, it's so hard to watch. And just watching it, I just like it was really upsetting to me. And I think that you can convey what happened by just describing it, and that that's, that can be powerful enough to get people to recognize why this is a problem. Like you don't, I don't think you have to see every single incident of violence yourself, on film. Like I'm glad that the film exists as as a documentation, and I doubt that the sheriff's department would have done anything without having the film exist. But that doesn't mean we have to watch it on repeat. This isn't like a new thing. That's just,
2: that's the other really shitty part. It's just that like people are, are like taping it and uploading it on the Internet.
7: Yeah, and I hope that it gets people to think about sort of the way that we look to, that we've started looking to police as the solution for classroom problems, which has been going on for years now and seems completely outsized and counterproductive in terms of creating a good educational system. That report that I mentioned from the African-American Policy Forum pointed out a couple ideas for how to actually improve the educational system for black girls, none of which involve calling the police on them for things like not putting their phones away or falling asleep in class. And the big ones were just to um, sort of review and really seriously look at policies that wind up funneling girls into the juvenile justice system and to develop ways to deal with the stress and, and pressure and trauma and harassment that girls face in their lives because a lot of times incidents like these escalate quickly um, in some part because the girls are, are reacting to something that's, that's bad. Yeah, you know? I, I actually, before
2: we came into the studio, I read a story by, um, an activist writer. His name is Sean King. And he interviewed the student's lawyer. And he said that, um, she just recently, the student just recently lost her mom. Oh, wow. And had to go into foster care. Right. So it's, it's like, we have to understand, you know, that's another thing about, like, people. Um I should stop reading the comments. But people making comments saying like, well, this student we' to we'll just listen to her teacher, you know, blah 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 blah. It's like you don't understand where this kid is coming from. Yeah, how much stress yeah, she's under. Yeah. She's going through a lot a lot of shit right now and like maybe she's not being responsive to authority, but to to physically like brutalize her like this, like isn't the solution. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then when you learn this piece about her, her family life, it's just, it just makes you, it, your heartbreak even more about like, like what she's going through now. Like, so she had to go through the trauma of losing her mother, and then now she's gonna have to go through the, like, the recovering trauma of having to have this incident afflicted upon her.
7: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I mean, I think, I think a way forward would be to make our educational system deal better with those kinds of trauma and pressures and, and be better for students there rather than just being like, oh you acted out in class we're calling the police on you forget about the root problems that are like, causing you to not be comfortable sitting in class listening to your teacher
5: I was born into a homeless family um, and and I grew up in the slums of San Francisco I mean I've been on probation since I know I mentioned earlier since 8th grade the first gun I ever had pointed in my head it was when I was 12 years old by a police officer. Typical story you could say. That's the first time I guess I was perceived as a problem. I got involved. I got caught up in the system. Then they sent me to group homes and arrested me again. I spent 90% of my teenage life in juvenile hall in the juvenile system. Makes you know, I'm 17 going on 18. I'm still on. I'm just like, oh my god, like these guys will never let me be free and never leave me alone. Any little thing, oh you missed school, we'll lock you up.
8: And that's where the school to prison pipeline starts.
5: So, the CARE program is Center for Academic Reentry and Empowerment CARE. And basically, they're a truancy program in the form of a school.
9: Youth are disconnected from their school they end up in the streets and they end up in harm's way and then ultimately they end up in prison or dead we address the behavior we peel back the layers and oftentimes we discover it's it's learned it's trauma it's things that have happened in the community
5: How I first got under probation was an incident with a teacher at George Washington High School. We were both in the hallways, I was bouncing my ball, and he said I hit him. I did not hit that teacher. After um, I got arrested for something I didn't do, my whole mindset of the system is I don't want nothing to do with it. You guys are something else. You guys set people up for failure. But as I go back and I I recollect, I could have easily got taken to the principal's office, instead of having me carried out in the back of a police car. When I finally came back here, and came into my senses. They helped me look for jobs. We provide services for them to find their self-worth and, and become self-sufficient. I hear a lot of kids always say things like, well, you guys actually care about us. You guys actually have our back. Most kids are stomped on and crushed early.
9: It's very difficult to, to transition, to turn your life around. Um, and that's why we have this program I want to bring in two more guests. Miyaja Jawara is a high school senior in Harlem. She's a member of the Urban Youth Collaborative as well as the Dignity in Schools Campaign New York chapter. Earlier this month, she participated in the White House Initiative for African American Excellence in Education. And Casey Foster is a coordinator of the Urban Youth Collective. Miaja, t- talk about your experiences with uh, school safety officers, as they're called here in uh, in New York City.
4: Mm. So in my school, we have since freshman year and since my freshman year into my senior year, there's been an increase in the number of school safety agents in my school so far. And with the increase of school safety agents, we don't have metal detectors in our school, but we have Roman metal detectors. So since the increase of school safety officers, the amount of times where we have the pop-up metal detectors coming to our school that's increased as well. The way that the, school, the way that the children were disciplined is seemed much more harsher since the increase. Um, my experience alone, I've dealt with a lot of. Like things that are really normal, like maybe I'm a few minutes late to class, ends with me instead of being sent to class, being sent to the um, safe room, which is basically a detention room, and we, I've been held there like for an entire class period for being like maybe just a couple minutes late to class. So that's been my experience.
9: And in the detention room, you have uh, yeah safe room. The safe room you have safety officers as well.
4: Yeah, there's two on outside the entrance to the room.
3: So, if you could talk about. Your own experience you got in a fight outside school mm-hmm. so
4: um it was la- it was in February of this year. just I know petty high school drama every high school has it. Um, we were on school property and we had fought after school, and we were right, we were still on school property, so Essentially, the school safety agents were the ones that were supposed to deal with the fight, but since it was kind of outside, even though we're still on school property, um, NYPD ended up dealing with the case. So in addition to getting, uh, well, being threatened with a suspension after the fight was over, the two of us were pulled apart, put on opposite sides of um, the cop car, threatened with an arrest and given a criminal summons, and I had to appear in court in April of this year. And what happened? When I went there, the case was dismissed, but when I went to school, I still had to deal with... um, they threatened me with a suspension, but I offered. How about peer mediation instead? So,
9: and Casey Foster, in her case, they apparently the police, other than uh, uh, than giving her a summons, didn't appear to do um, exercise any violence. What's wrong with that situation? For receiving a summons, yes. So here we have an incident which happens in high schools all across
10: the country. Right there was a very small minor altercation between two st- students. And instead of it being dealt with by school authorities, Miyaja is now being introduced into the criminal justice system for the first time in her life, right? Students that go to court during school days, because if you get a criminal uh, summons during, you have to go to court during a school day, are four times more likely to drop out of high school than students that do not. In New York, right, because you are, at 16 years old, you are charged as an adult for anything. If you are charged with a criminal summons in a school and you don't appear in court, Or if there's a fine that's attached to that and you don't appear, we now have high school students that are having open bench warrants for things that are happening within our schools that traditionally we have handled within the schools. But over a period of time, We have now criminalized the behavior of black children that is treated differently in other districts.
3: In New York, who's in charge of these uh, what are called security officers or SROs in other places?
10: So in New York, they are uh, referred to as school safety agents. They are part of the NYPD. They are not under the purview of the Department of Education. They are under the purview of the New York Police Department.
3: How much money is spent on them? Who do they answer to?
10: So the money for police in schools is actually spent by the Department of Education. Uh, it's somewhere between 360 million and 400 million dollars a year annually for what they're calling school safety needs
9: And I've spoken to principals in New York City schools who who complain about the fact that they have no control over these safety agents. If there's a particular one that they don't uh, uh, like their their methods, they have no control over whether they stay in their school or not. And as you say, they basically are the arm of the police department inside the public schools.
10: There was an incident last year at a high school in Brooklyn in which a young man was walking through a school, uh, a metal detector he had in his school. He had broken glasses, and so he had a safety pin that was holding his glasses together and he was told you can't come in with that because it's a weapon or you can use it as a weapon and he said I've been coming to school with my broken glasses for weeks and no one's ever bothered me and so the safety agents told him if you come in right we're going we're going to confiscate your glasses so leave them out here and he said I can't go to school all day without my glasses and so that turned into an altercation in which he was tackled in front of all of his classmates for trying to go to school with a pair of broken glasses <laughs> after being tackled and given a summons he thought the incident was over but someone from the school actually ended up calling in the local police And so now a local police department came and said there's an incident at the school and they held that child in the room with no adult supervision or anyone involved for a number of, I I don't remember how long it was, about an hour or so and the principal at that school at that time Right, Something that she could have handled very easily, knowing the student and knowing this is not a dangerous situation, couldn't control what happened throughout that whole incident.
3: I wanted to go to another story. Earlier this year in Kentucky, a deputy sheriff handcuffed two elementary school children with disabilities. This is according to a lawsuit filed by the American Civil Liberties Union. The 8- and 9-year-old kids were so small that the deputy sheriff... Who was working as the school's resource officer cuff their biceps because the handcuffs didn't fit their wrists. One of the children is black, the other is Latino. Uh, Jay Lee, in your research, um, can you talk about how this fits into what's happening across the country and the response?
11: Sure. That question goes back to the history of uh, the rise of school uh, school resource officers on K through 12 campuses. Um, the first sort of documented uh, instances in which we saw cops enter school grounds was somewhere in the 1950s. Uh, the exact time is unclear, but it wasn't until um, the early 2000s that we really started to see a huge spike, and that was of course after the tragic, mass shooting at columbine high school Um, the department of justice uh, since then has spent close to a billion dollars in grants to hire school cops Uh, it sounds like there have also been grants coming from the department of education and many more school districts have spent their own budget uh, funding to uh, to hire school resource officers Uh, in the wake of sandy hook uh, according to the national association of school resource officers we've seen another spike um, and, uh, of course, what we're seeing now from what I hear uh, from talking to various sources is that there's a larger growth happening on elementary school campuses. And so I think uh, in in the years ahead, we'll see more incidents happen with younger children uh, like we did in Kentucky.
9: And Phil Stinson, in about a minute, can you tell us uh, the uh, uh, to what degree the uh, uh – to, to what degree the, the police are being deployed in minority school districts largely as opposed to white school districts across the country?
12: Well, I think they're deployed uh, similarly across the country. There's very little in the way of data that would be able to, to break that down that I'm aware of. So it's, it's, it's kind of uh, difficult to tell. Uh, but they're used in different ways in the schools in which they are placed and I think it is um, apparent that there's, uh, you know, some race issues are involved here and that's something that needs to be looked at my biggest concern here is that, you know, the school to prison pipeline where we've got academic failure, we've got exclusionary disciplinary practices and we've got kids dropping out of high school and, uh, and, and the other thing that I've seen in my research is that girls that are brought into the juvenile justice system have a history of trauma and we look at the video from South Carolina certainly that was a traumatic experience that girl uh, encountered.
3: I think it's very interesting that yesterday in all the news coverage that I saw, they kept repeating that the girl was not hurt. Now, who did they get this from? Um, I didn't see them speaking to the girl, so who did they get this from? Miaja, when you saw this video, um, did it shock you? Have you seen anything like this in your own school in Harlem? It definitely did shock me because...
4: Just the way that the situation, how fast it escalated. It went from her sitting in her desk that's being flipped over to her being dragged across the room. It definitely did shock me. And while I haven't seen uh, in my own, I haven't seen it myself, I haven't seen something as serious as that. I have seen students being pulled, being aggressively pulled out of the classroom because they don't want to leave the classroom. Wow. It's just that... This is similar. just like, I feel like I'm watching the McKinney pool party all over again. It's a girl who's obviously much smaller than the person who was attacking her.
3: Wait just one sec. You talk about the McKinney pool party. Mm-hmm. Um, we have video of that, and for radio listeners, they can go to our website. But let's go back to that, because mm-hmm. me too, when I saw this, I thought this is exactly mm-hmm. the same approach. Talk about what happened with this white officer and this, I think she was 14 years yes, she old, was 14 girl in her bikini.
4: Mm-hmm. So she... Um It was a neighborhood pool party. Someone had invited um, people, I'm assuming from school or from um, just in their community they invited them to the pool party they were all invited guests everyone that was there and other people who lived in the neighborhood they were complaining say oh we don't want these black people in our neighborhood go back to a section 8 housing and the police were called and in the video as you can see as soon as the police were called everything everything was completely out of control the 14 year old girl she viciously slammed to the floor her head is put her face is in the grass and her she's being um, the officer is kneeling into her back she's in the video you can hear her saying get off me she's obviously in distress and and when I see the video from South Carolina, I think of the same thing that happened to McKinney. This is another girl, another girl who's, about, who's much smaller than who's attacking her. And it's at this point, is why do we, why is it happening again? Why is it repeating?
9: And and Casey Foster, what do you think needs to be done? What is your organization uh, advocating for in terms of the use of these uh, safety agents in schools? Sure. So I would say um,
10: the young people, the high school students, the organizers from our organization, Black and Latina High School Organizers in New York City, um, as well as Black and Latino organizers, high school students throughout the country, and even parents um, through the Dignity in Schools campaign are organizing to uh, one, we are organizing to eliminate suspension policies that are deeply rooted in anti-racism and, 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 and race, anti-blackness and racism, right? And so it is only right the biggest indicator for a student being suspended for these minor infractions is that they are black when you control for every other factor socioeconomic and every other factor that they say leads to so-called misbehavior the research clearly shows that the biggest indicator for a student being more likely to be suspended is that they are black and so we are advocating for an elimination of uh... suspension and uh... uh... policies that push students out of school right uh... and we are also advocating for Uh, replacing school resource officers and police officers in schools with more guidance counselors, social workers, community intervention workers, and professionals that are trained in trauma-informed practices to create a safe and supportive uh, system for schools uh, and for young people. New York City has 5,400 school safety agents and a combined 3,600 guidance counselors and social workers. And so we are not investing in the future of black children. We're not investing in public education. We're investing in prison cultivation. So
3: you want the ratio flipped?
10: We want the ratio flipped on its head, (laughs) yes.
0: nothing extra, but 7-8% to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whether that be rejecting consumption altogether, consuming sustainably, or at least consuming in a subversive
8: way. Condemnation came quickly when video surfaced on social media of a South Carolina police officer assaulting a female high school student in class in the process of arresting her for, according to reports, either not participating or refusing to put away a cell phone. But while demands to fire school resource officer Ben Fields, who had a history of racialized brutality, were answered, we still haven't had a deep-going conversation about why he was in the room in the first place. The incident at Spring Valley High School is sadly reflective, too, of ways that black women and girls in particular encounter state violence on a daily basis. That's the problem explored in the report Black Girls Matter, pushed out, over-policed, and under-protected, produced by the African-American Policy Forum, on whose board I serve. And we're joined now by the group's founder, Kimberly Crenshaw. She's professor of law at UCLA and Columbia Law School, where she also directs the Center for Intersectionality and Social Policy Studies. Welcome back to Counterspin, Kimberly Crenshaw.
13: It's always a pleasure, Janine. Thanks for having me.
8: Well, it's welcome news that Ben Fields has been fired, but what doesn't firing this guy do? What's left untouched?
13: What's left untouched is the entire system that has produced a particularly egregious outcome for the two girls that were involved. We did spend a lot of time over the last 48 hours talking about what should happen to the police officer. And somewhat under the radar was the question of what should happen to the girls. You know, some people kind of assume that once it was decided that the officer acted out of policy, that somehow that would automatically lead to a decision that the charges against the girls should be dropped. But to our knowledge, the charges are still pending. And I think we saw in the statement of the sheriff who fired Mr. Fields that He actually saw the arrest as being legitimate. So we have to now look deeper into how it is possible that one could be subject to arrest either for not paying attention, for looking at a cell phone, or speaking up against brutality that's playing out in the classroom. So the big issue is can we get to the criminalization of ordinary behavior that young people engage in?
8: Well there's so many heartbreaking parts of this the the comment from Nia Kenny the young woman who recorded the assault and who spoke up and who was then as you say arrested herself she said she did so in part because she knew her classmate didn't have nobody you know that her mother and grandmother had died it just speaks to the multiple levels of trauma in the lives of these girls and then school was not a haven from that trauma but an extension of it, you know. So we should remember that the trauma of an incident like this doesn't affect only the immediate victim, but also everyone who witnesses it, and then also everyone who recognizes that they too could be subject to it and that it would somehow be okay, you know.
13: Yes, and that's the piece of what we were learning when we did our report, Black Girls Matter. There's trauma all around, trauma And being in an institution in which any moment you might be subject to severe punishment, including suspension, or in this case, arrest, there's trauma that many young people, and particularly girls, actually carry into the school with them. So as I was looking at the video, I had no idea what this young lady was dealing with, but it occurred to me that she could well be suffering from some kind of personal challenge, some kind of personal trauma in which just getting to school is in and of itself a victory, right? If that teacher had simply perhaps Approach the young lady or just let her be for a period of time. No doubt the the fact that she was suffering from some challenges would have eventually made itself known, but the moment this becomes a law enforcement issue, that becomes the moment where the student's future is placed at risk. And that means our institutions are underserving students, not only by making such behavior subject to law enforcement, but depriving them of the resources that they might otherwise need to handle some of the problems that they're dealing with.
8: Yeah, Sheriff Lott at every turn says that the young lady was disruptive and disrespectful. It reflects an attitude that the young women and girls who you spoke with for Black Girls Matter, they remarked on that a lot, didn't they? This idea that they were disrespectful, that they were somehow in and of themselves disruptive. That's kind of common.
13: We were trying to figure out what was behind the disparity. We had found that black girls are six times more likely to be suspended than white girls, and in New York it was ten times more likely. But we wanted to know what the stories behind the data were, and girls would tell us that they felt Strongly, that the teachers and administrators looked at them as problems. They said they see us as loud, unruly. The girls use the word ghetto. They see us as ghetto when we participate in class. Sometimes the way that we participate or the way that we talk, the teachers don't like or they'll see it as being disrespectful. And when they get disrespected, the responses often will leave the classroom.
8: Yeah, Brittany Cooper in Salon was saying you know, one girl was being punished for being quiet and another girl was being punished for speaking up, you know. Um, yeah. It's a textbook illustration, if we needed one, of the school-to-prison pipeline. You know, these right. girls could now have records, you know, what people call push-out from schools, this kind of thing that basically lessens young women's interest in going to school, makes it harder for them to be there, that then leads to many other things. That then has far greater repercussion even outside of school, doesn't it? Not only
13: are black girls disproportionately facing push-out, but the consequences of that push-out include both being uh, caught up in the school-to-prison pipeline, being arrested for things that teenagers do all the time, and teenagers do in non-zero tolerance schools without fear of arrest. But also, we know that any time a girl is separated from school, it increases the risk that she won't graduate. It increases the risk that she will encounter other kind of risks when she's not in school. But then beyond that, not being able to graduate and graduate on time is associated with long-term insecurity, both economically in terms of access to the workforce, housing insecurity, and greater risk of being caught up in the criminal justice system.
8: Well, let me just ask you finally, how do we move forward from this? What are some things that we can be doing or demanding right now with regard to this?
13: Well, one thing I definitely hope happens is that the frame stays open. Now that we've seen this, we can no longer go back to the assumption that police violence, both in and out of the school, really only impacts men and and men of color in particular. The second thing is hopefully this will create finally a moment uh, to have a very serious conversation about whether police belong in schools at all. I often think about the fact that my own mother taught junior high school for 50 years, and she was known as a disciplinarian. She never had to rely on sworn officers to come in and do her job. So it may be that our current teachers who have relied on the police to actually enforce classroom discipline, have got to learn new skills. If that's the case, then let's make that happen. But this reliance on the police cannot be consistent with what we want to happen in our public schools.
8: We've been speaking with Professor Kimberly Crenshaw. You can find the Black Girls Matter report, along with more work, at the African American Policy Forum website. That's aapf.org.
2: They're putting a lot of cops in schools in Austin, Texas. They're putting cops in schools, and that means more dropouts because the ways in which police interact with students in school can
4: play a role in those kids dropping out of school. So the high school graduation rate, no,
6: no, no. What, 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 what was, what was happening, Amani? I don't know what Amani. Amani no, just had just, a stroke. Yeah, I did have a stroke. Moment, Wait, what just, just happened? I, I don't know what you're talking about.
4: Oh, sorry. No, no, no. I got, it. I got 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 it. Oh my god. The way that I
6: guess <laughs> just, 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 like, just, just, a professional. Just a professional.
4: You take the story. I'm not gonna...
6: saying <laughs> that. Uh, the, the, the the story was about a study about and 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 not uh, what? not, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah. The, see. Woman. Emily,
14: s- you try. <laughs> no, it, is, it actually is pretty confusing. It it's, is, because I think
2: the police chief was warning that there would be more dropouts, because but the change they, in the ways in which the police were interacting. Because they were the
6: showing that there were, there had been a, 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 a specific drop, in uh, there had been a, a rise in, a, a, in graduation when cops were pulled of not while uh, policing at the school the same way. And so the whole point was that when police interact with students in a certain way, then it leads to more dropouts overall. Yeah. That was what they were talking I about. Know what I said. And so the, no, you didn't say that! <laughs> the, so the police chief was, uh, was urging, uh, schools to balance, uh, th- its, uh, discipline factors. Uh, and a, a, uh, quoting from the, uh, from the, um, Uh, tcnews.com, a record 84.1% of Austin students graduated in 2013, up from 75% uh, a decade earlier. Several factors play into this increase, but Austin Police Chief Art uh, Art Acevedo says studies show that the way police interact with students in schools could play a key role. There was a correlation between an increase and proliferation of police forces in these school districts and the dropout rate. Acevedo uh, says that classroom discipline has changed dramatically since he was a a teen. He says teachers are worried about getting uh, sued and charged with assaulting a a student, and they uh, instead call the police to intervene in, in what he refers to as schoolyard scuffles. So, somebody will get uh, a criminal summons from the school district uh, uh, the school district police for a battery of assault, and therein starts the beginning of schools into a school to prison pipeline, which is something that we've discussed on the show numerous times that a lot of times uh, uh black uh, uh, kids are black children are uh, i mean well ch- children in general but this is, happens a lot with black kids that they're uh, criminalized early and things that shouldn't be uh, criminalized they shouldn't be uh, suspended or arrested for they get, they get arrested for because Because that's how they deal with the youth like that. It says one of the programs catching the attention of, uh, it says somebody will get it. Oh, yes. One of the uh, programs catching the attention of leaders nationwide based in, uh, is based in South Austin. The Travis County Juvenile Justice Program is aimed at uh, trying to get students back in the classroom as soon as possible and deter them from a life of crime. And so this, uh, so it's, it's, this is the big thing about trying to figure out basically how to not lock kids into the system because they're being locked into the system earlier and earlier as time goes on.
14: probably seen this video of Officer Ben Fields throwing a student to the ground in South Carolina. Now the question many are asking is, why are there police officers in schools anyway? There are as many as 20,000 cops working in schools across the country. They're called school resource officers. And what happened in South Carolina isn't a one-off. There were protests in Rhode Island after this officer slammed a 15-year-old student to the ground. The ACLU filed a federal lawsuit after this officer handcuffed a third grader. In 2012 alone, the police arrested more than 64,000 students. Police officers were first introduced into the American school system during desegregation. But towards the late 90s, and especially after the Columbine shooting in Colorado, things began to change. Around the country, there were calls for more police to protect students. The Justice Department then spent $750 million to add 6,500 more cops into schools. This was also the dawn of zero-tolerance school policies, which were supposed to keep guns and drugs out of schools. But over time, these policies have extended to petty high school drama, like students throwing tantrums, disobeying teachers, or fighting. Instead of just being there for safety, school police have gotten involved in discipline. That means arrests instead of just detention. And that has disproportionately affected black and Latino students. In fact, 31% of those arrested in 2012 were black students, even though they only make up 16% of the student population. When 26 people were shot dead at Sandy Hook Elementary School in 2012, President Obama allocated $125 million more to add additional police officers into schools. But experts say there's little evidence that they improve safety. What they do know is that police in schools funnel more minors into the criminal justice system, the so-called school-to-prison pipeline. The South Carolina officer has been fired, but maybe it's time to ask, does having cops in schools do more harm than good?
0: You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, safequalityschools.org, ending the school-to-prison pipeline. Spring Valley High has elevated the public consciousness about violence against black women and girls, as well as the prevalence of school officers as disciplinarians across the country. But as Ijeoma Oluo writes in The Establishment, the young girls sitting around the victim in the video aren't the only ones who weren't surprised. Quote, To many, it's shocking to see the officer throw the silent girl out of her seat, onto the ground, and drag her across the floor by her leg. To many, it's shocking to see the teacher and the school administrator stand by silently while one of their students is assaulted. But this isn't shocking to black women in America. Unquote. As mentioned before on the show, violence against women of color is, to put it mildly, Poorly covered, and possibly the only subtopic of police violence covered less often is that perpetrated by the officers invited into our schools. We think of the school to prison pipeline as a general oppression and commodification of youth of color. As author Roxanne Gay writes in the New York Times, it is much more than that. Quote, "...schools are not merely sites of education. They are sites of control. In fact, they are sites of control well before they are sites of education. And for certain populations, students of color, working class students, anyone on the margins, the sites of control in the school system can be incredibly restrictive, suffocating, perilous." The Advancement Projects Program, Ending the Schoolhouse to Jailhouse Track, is dedicated to documenting and exposing zero tolerance and other harsh policies that contribute to violence like that at Spring Valley High, developing and implementing school discipline reform at the local level, and organizing national visibility campaigns pushing for broader reform. At safequalityschools.org, you can find the current campaigns and programs in your state, as well as infographics to share and resources for students, parents, educators, law enforcement, and activists through a link on their homepage, you can also contribute personal stories detailing how the school to prison pipeline has affected you and or your loved ones and neighbors. For inspiration and motivation, they also have a page of victories from around the country of law and policy changes. As the Advancement Project infographic titled, What You Need to Know About Hashtag Assault at Spring Valley High states, these incidents are not uncommon. It's time we demanded our education tax dollars actually be used to educate, not victimize. Visit safequalityschools.org and get involved. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources. And as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. If ending the school-to-prison pipeline matters to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about Safe Quality Schools via Social media, so that others in your network can become part of the movement too. Activism.
4: Come on out from in front of the television. Bust out of your self imposed media prison. There's a whole big world out there, y'all. And some serious stuff is going down civil war, intolerance, age, obliteration. The usual madness, but not enough frustration about what's troubling Earth's nations. The spotlight will not be your savior in these dark days, and it will not be your saving grace. Why not replace your dreams of gracing life stage
9: with action? We turn now to shocking new videos that have surfaced from inside Spring Valley High School in Columbia, South Carolina, where a police officer has been caught on camera slamming a teenage girl to the ground and dragging the student out of the classroom. The videos, which went viral on Monday, appear to show Deputy Sheriff Ben Fields approaching the student who was seated at her desk, then wrapping his arm around her and flipping her and her desk to the ground. He then appears to drag her out of the classroom. The student was arrested. Another student who filmed the assault was also arrested and held on a $1,000 bail. On Tuesday, Richland County Sheriff Leon Lott said he was shocked and disturbed by the video.
5: Just like anybody who saw the video, I was shocked and disturbed by it. Uh, You can't watch the video without having those types of feelings. And as a sheriff and as a parent of a 7th grade daughter, uh, it it bothered me. And at that point, um, I wanted to have a lot of questions answered.
3: The incident reportedly began when the student refused to give her teacher her phone, uh, which then prompted the teacher to call for outside help. Soon, Deputy Sheriff Fields came into the classroom to remove her. Classmates say Fields had a reputation as being aggressive with students who had nicknamed him Officer Slam. Fields has faced accusations of excessive use of force and racial bias in the past. In 2007, he was sued for excessive use of force. The case was later dropped. In 2013, he was sued in a civil rights case that is still pending. Following the release of the videos, Deputy Sheriff Fields was suspended without pay. The U.S. Department of Justice and the FBI have opened investigations. The
9: incident is the latest in a series of cases of police officers in schools using excessive force against students. In a recent expose, Mother Jones documented many cases involving officers uh, punching, tasing, and even fatally shooting students. On Monday, Spring Valley High School student Nia Kenny, who was arrested after she filmed the assault, told told local station WLTX, that she was shocked and disturbed by uh, police officer Fields' behavior.
4: I was in disbelief. I know this girl don't got nobody, and I couldn't believe this was happening. I'd never seen nothing like that in my life. Like, a man used that much force on a little girl, a big man, like 300 pounds, a full muscle. I was like, no way, no way. Like, you can't do that to no little girl. I'm talking about she like five, six, And I was screaming, what the F, what the F, is this really happening? I was praying out loud for the girl, and I just, I couldn't believe it was happening. I was just crying, and he was like, well, since you got so much to say, you
3: coming too. And I was like, what? And you want some of this? Mm -mm. Just put my hands behind my back. Well, for more, we're joined by three guests. In San Francisco, Jay Ali is with us, a reporter for Mother Jones magazine. Earlier this year, she wrote an article called Chokeholds, Brain Injuries, Beatings, When School Cops Go Bad. In Bowling Green, Ohio, we're joined by Professor Phil Stinson, criminologist and associate professor at Bowling Green State University. And in Austin, Texas, we're joined by Adam Lowy, an attorney who represented Noe Nino de Rivera, a 17-year-old Texas student who spent 52 days in a medically-induced coma after police used a taser on him at school. We welcome you all to Democracy Now! Jaya, let's begin with you and this sadly prophetic piece uh, that you did in Mother Jones. Talk about the scope of the problem that you investigated across the country.
11: Well, I should begin by saying that there is much like with police shootings uh, nationwide uh, and on the streets there isn't good data on the use of force by cops in schools so it's really hard to say Uh, i began uh, the story for me began with a couple of local news reports that i had seen while in the course of reporting a use of force by police officers and uh, I was surprised by the number of cases I was finding. One led to another. Uh, I've documented a handful of them in the article, uh, and it's hard to say just exactly how expansive uh, this issue is. Uh, many will point out that, uh, like with most officers on the streets, uh, most cops in schools have a really good influence on, on students. Uh, Of course, because of the lacking data, it's hard to say exactly to what degree that is true and to what degree we're seeing uh, problems occur.
9: Uh, Jay I wanted to ask you one of the things that I've noticed at least in some of the debates that have occurred here in New York City on the school safety officers is that often the chain of command of these officers does not go to the principal and the administrators of the school in particular but actually go outside of the school to their own uh, law enforcement uh, agencies and that creates problems with even the administrators or the principals being able to control the activities of these officers did you find that uh, across the country
11: yeah, there's uh, there's certainly a lack of consistency as to, first of all, what exactly the role of a school resource officer should be, uh, let alone who they should report to and what the exact protocol is. Often those, those terms are defined in memorandums of understanding bef- between the school district and the local police department, uh, or just within the school district if they have their own internal police departments uh what i have often seen from talking to advocates uh and looking at several case examples is that the officers uh often seem to be reporting back to their department rather than to uh the school district i do i do often hear that school districts are in Uh, close cooperation with officers Uh, but again the chain of command sometimes isn't always clear uh, and as well as the the role that they should be playing inside of the school hallways and classrooms is not always clear either
3: I wanted to go to former army medic Carlos Martin uh, this is quite amazing. He spoke to NBC about his own interaction with this officer, Ben Fields, back in 2005. This is 10 years ago.
1: I live maybe like four or five miles away from base. I get out my car. I walk to my door. Everything's normal. As I'm putting the keys in the door, I hear a car peel off. Naturally, my reaction was going to be I was going to turn around to see what was going on in a situation. As I turn around... Officer Ben Fields get out of the car. I didn't know his name at the time. He gets out the car and the officer is running towards me. Hey you, hey you, come here, come here. I'm like, who me? He was like, yeah, you. I'm out here for a noise violation. And I was like, okay, well it couldn't have been me. I just got home. He asked me for my license and registration. I handed my license and registration. The problem was, was when I was in Germany, I lost my picture ID. I was an Alaska resident, so Alaska sends you a paper license when you don't have your picture license. So I gave him my paper license, my German license, and my registration. I even pointed out to the fact that on my tags, I still had German tags on my car because I was just moving to uh, Fort Jackson, South Carolina, where I was stationed. He got a little upset. I guess he didn't understand the paperwork that I gave him. He was like, well, what the hell is this? I was like, dude, if you just calm down, you can see that I have German tags on my car. And he interrupted me in the middle of the conversation. And he was like, you are not addressing me as dude. I'm a Richmond County officer of the law. I was like, well, you address me by, hey, you. He was like, well, that's because I don't know your name. And I was like, well, sir, I don't know your name either. And next thing you know, wham, he slams me to the ground and starts beating on me, hitting on me, punching me. He takes out his can of mace, he uses a whole can of mace on me. And he became more violent because I didn't react like the normal civilian well I'm not a normal civilian in this whole situation I was in my military uniform I don't even blame him I blame the people who allowed him to do it because it's not the first time he did it he's continuously did it so it's just not officer Fields being wrong it's sheriff Lott. it's whole. its whole department who allowed their wild dog to be off the leash because they knew he was a wild dog from the beginning
3: that is the army medic Carlos Martin who is describing his interaction with the same officer in the video at the Spring Valley School But this was 10 years ago. Phil Stinson, as we said, is also with us, Bowling Green State University criminologist. Can you talk about what you found with police officers in the schools? Uh, Carlos Martin, I have to say, um, speculated maybe Fields was taken off the street because he was so dangerous and then what, put into a school?
12: Well, it's an interesting thing. Uh, Police officers... Uh, don't even have to have a college education in many places across the country. They go to a police academy, which could be a few months, uh, two months to six months, depending on the jurisdiction. And then they have periodic in-service training throughout their career. Uh, there's very little that's known about exactly how school resources Resource officers are selected in many jurisdictions, but frankly, it's officers who apply for the position, somebody who wants to work in the schools. And, and from what I'm hearing as to Officer Fields, I'm not sure that he has the demeanor and the personality type that would be somebody we want working in a public high school.
9: Well, Phil uh, Stinson, I want to ask you about this whole issue of responsibilities of school districts as opposed to where police officers are out on the street, that it's the expectation of parents that when they send their children to school, the districts will take some responsibility for their their safety. And this whole issue of uh, more and more police uh, being employed inside the schools uh, and being able to use this kind of uh, authority and force on uh, basically children. Well,
12: it's estimated that more than half the schools in the United States, the public schools, have school resource officers assigned to them, either part-time or full-time. And it's uh, at least 17,000 officers that are in the schools. Um, In terms of... Uh, their roles, there's, there's a good bit of role ambiguity here. Are they educators? Are they counselors? Are they mentors? Are they police officers? Are they security officers? In most jurisdictions, they're, they're all of the above. Uh, and they don't have, uh, training in pedagogical issues. They don't have training in, uh, education issues. They're, they're not trained educators. Uh, and, and one thing that's, that seems to be apparent here is that, uh, at least Officer Fields did not have training in uh, de-escalation, did not have training in use of passive restraints. You know, in the juvenile justice system, it would be unheard of for somebody to put their hands on, a staff member put their hands on a juvenile who's passively resisting sitting in a chair. It's just completely inappropriate. If you have to remove the other kids from the classroom, I guess that's going to have to be done. But you de-escalate the situation. And if you do have to place hands on the kid, you're going to use some sort of passive restraint procedure. Uh, you would think that they would practice this, that they would have drills in this type of thing, because I would uh, hazard a guess that uh, students refuse to give up cell phones in classrooms across this country every day.